Welcome to If We Can Keep It, the podcast brought to you by Keep Our Republic. I'm your host, Ari Middleman, and I'm thrilled to introduce you to the work of Keep Our Republic through this podcast. I serve as the executive director of this great nonprofit. Together, we're going to explore various challenges facing our democracy and what each of us can do to protect it. As we approach the 2024 election, the stakes couldn't be higher, and the need for informed discussions with Americans from all political parties and perspectives is paramount. Keep Our Republic's a 501c3 nonprofit. We have extensive civic education programming in Michigan, in Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. As America approaches her 250th birthday, we believe that education and open dialogue are the cornerstones of preserving this great country. In the coming episodes of If We Can Keep It, we'll have conversations with a diverse array of voices, former elected officials, legal experts, retired judges, reporters, academics, and others who are working each week to educate their fellow Americans about our electoral processes. But If We Can Keep It is more than just a platform to discuss problems. It's a space to seek solutions. We'll be talking to experts who are actively working in these historic times. We're going to be examining innovative ideas and strategies aimed at strengthening our democracy and restoring faith in our institutions. Most importantly, I want to invite you, our listeners, to join the conversation. Your questions, your feedback, they're crucial to the success of this podcast. We do want to hear from you. Visit Keep Our Republic on social media or via our website, keepourrepublic.org. Please also give us a rating and review and spread the word to friends. But now, I'm excited to launch this podcast with a great leader who helped launch Keep Our Republic in 2020. I've learned so much from Congressman Dick Gephardt over the last three years, and I know today you will too. I'm most impressed with his tireless commitment to keeping our republic while constantly reminding each of us to put country over party. When Ben Franklin was leaving the Constitution Hall, he was asked if the founders had decided to have a republic or an autocracy. And he said, we have a republic if we can keep it. Well, Congressman Dick Gephardt, really appreciate you taking the time and more so being in the trenches since day one of Keep Our Republic. It probably seems like a decade ago, but can you take listeners back to the genesis of Keep Our Republic and what you and the other founders were thinking in the spring and summer of 2020? Sure. So in the spring of 2020, a bunch of us, the old public servants, came together because we were really worried about having a valid election in 2020 because we were in a pandemic. We knew that this would make the election process really difficult because people wouldn't want to go to a polling place because they'd get infected with covid and a lot of people were going to cast ballots in a way that they had never casted ballots before by mail, drop box, whatever is allowed in a particular state or jurisdiction. So we felt it was important to start communicating with the public and the whole electoral infrastructure, especially in the swing states to reassure them that we could do this. We can do this. And we had a sister organization called National Council for Election Integrity that formed out of issue one. And while KOR was more of a grassroots effort, an on the ground effort, if you will, even though we couldn't be much on the ground in 2020, the other effort was mainly messaging 
TV, social media, what have you. And we ran ads in the swing states, basically saying in a pandemic, we can have a valid election. All the votes can be counted. All the votes will be counted faithfully. And you should cast your vote in whatever way you want. So that was that effort. Um, we maybe had a little role in helping the election to come out to be valid as it was recognized by most Americans. When I was helping with this, I trying to raise money. People would say to me, why are you doing this? This isn't going to do any good. And I said, maybe it won't. I don't know. All I know is I'm a citizen of this country. I love this democracy. We have to keep it going. And all of us as citizens have to do whatever we can do to make sure the democracy is sustained. So that's why we did it. Well, I think I speak for all listeners when I say many, many thanks. Uh, I remember, and it, it does seem like ages ago, I mean, you joined a panel discussion at University of Scranton, for example, uh, in the weeks before the 2020 election. In the days before the 2020 election, you joined uh, our friend Governor Tom Ridge with hundreds of uh, attorneys from the Pennsylvania Bar as well. And you know, Keep Our Republic's taken a bit of a tack to looking at the post-election period. Maybe you can speak to that kind of five and a half week sprint between election night and the Electoral College meeting, and then certainly the world saw the significance of the first week of January. Yeah, one of the roles that KOR <clears throat> tried to deal with was post-election problems or threats to having a valid election. <clears throat> and we have on the KOR founder group some really tremendous legal talent, constitutional law talent, federal government talent, electoral you know, electoral process talent. And so we started early on in 20, even before the election, putting out academic pieces, just talking about the various threats, unconventional threats that could happen to having a valid election. We had analysis of the 12th Amendment. We had analysis of how the whole process works through time, you know, right after the election. We, we, we did a lot of work on how the Electoral College functions or dysfunctions. And we had a lot of academic work we put out on questions involving violence at, at the Electoral College meetings in the states and what do you do if this happens or that happens? So we were wargaming, if you will, with uh, academic papers on what to do if certain things happen. So I think that may be the most valuable contribution we made to the post-2020 period. And as you know, a lot of those threats that we, we were foreseeing came to be. And having that material out there ahead of time for everybody to read and understand was really important. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm having flashbacks, PTSD, if you will. I think we discovered, um, number one, there was a lot of interest. And in, in the fall of 2020, we had hundreds and hundreds of participants in these seminars as we were exploring the post-election vulnerabilities. But the other side of the coin is there just wasn't any awareness. Uh, it was just remarkable of people who had 
spent years in public life or had been on the ballot many times and never really thought about what happens after election night and how votes are canvassed and certified. Yeah, we just we've always just assumed that the electoral process would work, that it wouldn't have any problems. I ran for Congress 14 times and it never crossed my mind in all those elections that the election would not be fair and honest. I knew the electoral officials in St. Louis, St. Louis County and the other counties I represented. I talked to them a lot. We we were always worried about the electoral process, but never really like we are now. There was never a question. We've all just assumed this. And as you know, the electoral infrastructure is made up of a lot of local officials, not highly paid, very low paid public servants, and a lot of volunteers, mainly senior citizens, who do the hard work to make an election happen and succeed. So this was eye-opening stuff because we had never really looked at this from this viewpoint before. Okay, we actually, let's, let's go back even further um, and share with listeners what, what drew you to public service. Um, and then for that matter, uh, the, the angst, uh, if I could use that term, that was in the body politic in 1968 and the corruption we began to see in 1972. Um, uh, it seems eerily similar to what we're seeing now, but take listeners back to what was that, that spark? I mean, did you wake up in kindergarten and say, I want to get into electoral politics or? No, not really. But I grew up in a frankly poor household in St. Louis. My dad was a milk truck driver the best job he ever had, and he only had it for 10 years. My mother was a secretary in a law firm, downtown St. Louis. The most important lesson my parents taught me was to always treat other people the way I wanted to be treated. In fact, my mother said to me one time, the most selfish thing you can do is to treat other people the way you would like to be treated, because you're going to get that treatment nine times out of 10 back from them. So that was kind of my introduction to early life. She also said to me, always be humble because you deserve to be. That was also great advice. And after that, I had a public high school teacher when I was in a junior in public high school in the city of St. Louis who stopped me one day and said, I think you could get a scholarship to go to Northwestern in communication studies. It had never entered my head to go to college. Neither of my parents got to high school. I got the scholarship. I got to go to Northwestern. I got to go to Michigan Law School after that. So I truly understood that America was the land of opportunity. And All of us, no matter where we come from, what kind of background we come from, in America, unlike many other countries, you really have an opportunity. And I was very grateful for that. I had learned civics in grade school and high school, and my parents always voted. They weren't in politics in any way, but they believed the civic lessons that they had gotten in grade school a long, long time ago. 
When I was in college, John Kennedy was elected president. And I was really impressed by him and his administration and the way he conducted himself. And I always thought somebody who came from such a privileged background, who would give his life to public service, that's really what we all, all ought to consider doing if we have the interest and the ability to do it. So when I came back to St. Louis after law school, I went to the local democratic organization and volunteered. The committeeman who was the clerk of the circuit court downtown was an elderly fellow by the name of Philem O'Toole. And he kind of looked at me like I was crazy. He said, what, what are you doing? What, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to volunteer. He said, we don't have volunteers here. <laughs> I said, that's all I want to do. I just want to volunteer. He said, okay, you can be the second precinct captain. And your job is to go to every house in the precinct, introduce yourself, talk to the people, find out who you think is a D, who's an R, who's an independent, mark that down on your list. On election day, go to the polling place for the second precinct, hand out our sample ballot. If at four o'clock, any of the people you identified as Ds have not shown up, you get in your car and you go out and try to convince them to come in and vote. That's politics. That's grassroots politics. So from that, I ran for city council. I was on the city council called the Board of Aldermen for five years. And then the congressional seat opened up. We had a woman, a great woman who was our representative. She retired. And I ran for Congress. Nobody gave me a chance. I'm, I might add that that first uh, election for Board of Aldermen, I won by 12 votes. I always think back, what if I had lost that election by 12 votes? Would I have gone on in politics? So I run for Congress. I win that. And I was there for 28 years. Half the time I was leader of the Democrats. I got to run for president of this fabulous country twice. And it was a, a high honor and privilege to be able to be a public servant, which is what you are in this great country. And every day I thought my job is to represent these people that I continued to go door to door for 28 years to talk to. My job is to represent them as well as I can and in everything I do to put country over party and country over self, which is the most important element that you need to look for in any public service. Well, we have many student listeners, and I would say that's incredibly sage advice and certainly sage advice from your, your, your mom. I would also encourage listeners to pick up a copy of uh, the congressman's new book. It's a great title, 535 and Not, Not One that explores some of these themes. But looking back to the civil unrest in the streets of 1968 and the corruption that we saw at the highest levels of government in the early 70s, is it wrong to draw parallels? It just seems as you and I have traveled in the country, I mean, there is, there, there's just a lot of angst uh, out there as you get into uh, some of these counties. Well, the first thing I'd say is that one of the things you always have to remember and understand about democracy human governance 
is that democracy is always fragile and always close to collapse. Why? It's a human endeavor. Human beings are imperfect. We all are imperfect. We all have failures and we all have wrongdoing in our life. So democracy, if you think about it, is in the case of Congress, 535 Americans are trying to govern the whole country. And through elections, it's really the embodiment of self-governance, which in 1789, when we were founded, was a radical idea. Nobody in the world did this or even tried to do it. We were the first. So you, you first have to understand that there are always huge disagreements between the people, huge controversies, huge issues that divide people and make the job of governance very difficult. I participated in lots and lots of resolution of controversial issues, abortion and immigration and the budget and poverty and you go the whole list. And I got to see a lot of really tough issues get resolved with compromise. It's always a compromise. You don't solve anything on one side of the aisle or the other. You have to have a compromise. And at the end of every compromise on big, tough issues, what I was impressed with was that the losers on that issue, and there were always lots of anger on the losing side who hated the compromise, but those people were not willing to pick up a, a rifle or leave the country they were willing to grudgingly accept the compromise because they thought the process was fair. So that's how we got through all these controversies that you just mentioned. The Vietnam War, the aftermath of the Vietnam War, civil rights, demonstrations, people being bitterly angry about uh, integration of the schools. You can go down the list of all the upset that happened in the 60s and 70s and on to today. It will never end. You will always have bitter disagreements between 340 million Americans. The question is, do you have a process that allows those 340 million people to resolve those differences peacefully. Now, a more efficient way to do it is to let one person make all the decisions. That's the authoritarian model. That's the other option that's always in front of you. And there's a lot of arguments for that option. You can move faster. You can move more effectively. You can get things done fast. You can decide you're going to build a railroad or you're going to take care of health care, whatever it is, you can do it. One guy, one woman just does it. But it always fails. It's a horrible form of governance. It always fails. 
Look at Russia today. Look at China. It isn't good enough to just have one person in the room. None of us is smart enough to know how to run these big countries alone. You will make huge mistakes and there's no input from anybody other than a little elite group that's around the authoritarian leader. It's a disaster, but there's always a siren call in every democracy. Uh, let's, let's just put one person in the room. This is not working, it's too much of a mess. I used to always say Congress, democracy always has to be a goddamn mess, always, because there's so many people in the room, but it's a better system by far. And we have been given this precious gift of a republic, a democracy by our founders, and we have to protect it every day and every night. Well, you've been super generous with your time. Uh, as we wind down, you know, we're approaching the birthday of America, the big 250th in 2026. This week, we're going to be marking over 230 years of the resilience of the Constitution. Maybe an, a, a, a loaded question, but are you optimistic as you look at the next 250 years of America? I mean, how resilient do you think our Constitution and our founders are as we look at these pressure points? I'm always optimistic, Ari, because I've had a chance to meet the American people. I went door to door religiously every weekend I was home in my district. I ran for president twice. When I was leader of the Democrats, I went to every state. I met millions probably of people. The vast majority of Americans are just good people. Nobody's perfect. Everybody has faults and failures, but the vast majority are basically good people with good values, and they understand the importance of retaining our democracy. Just look at the 2020 election. Why was it ultimately successful and seen by most Americans as honest and six or seven local state electoral officials, all Republicans, did the right thing and stood against enormous pressure from Donald Trump and his team to not call this thing honestly and to not have a valid election. That gives me the kind of reassurance that the American people, whether they're left or right or center or Republican or Democrat or socialist or deeply conservative, have a basic belief in this democracy and will put country over party and country over self when the chips are down. And they were down in 2020. So I'm optimistic. I think 2024 is going to be a really tough election to get through, but I have confidence that the American people will see it through and we will have another successful election around the time of our 250th birthday. So final question to piggyback off of that. The name of the podcast is If We Can Keep It. It's from the uh, old anecdote of Ben Franklin walking out of the Constitutional Convention and 
challenging uh, the woman who asked them the question that this is a republic if, if you, madam, can keep it. So what can listeners and what can everyday Americans do over the next 400 some days to help strengthen our democracy? Well, I wish Ben Franklin had added to that, if we can keep it instead of you, because he had to be involved too. But it should be if we can keep it, and to keep it, we have to all work at it. This is a non-ending task, and we all have to be involved. We all can do something. If you just go out and vote for whoever you want, you have done some of your obligation as a citizen. If you want to do more, you can do more. You can volunteer for campaigns of people you believe in to run for public office. You can run for public office yourself. You can volunteer to be an election worker. You can volunteer with local organizations, political organizations to go door to door and talk to your neighbors about the importance of being involved in the electoral process. There's no end to what all of us can do. The main thing is that all of us make a decision that we're going to do this in whatever way we're comfortable, in whatever way we can do it. It takes all of us. This is not on automatic pilot. This is an ongoing work in progress. Well, thank you so much for your time, your perspective, and, and for being the pilot of this Keep Our Republic uh, ship as we uh, may or may not be sailing into some choppy waters, but really appreciate it. I'm, I'm somewhere in the cabin. You're the pilot, Ari. <laughs> thank you much. <laughs>